So we're, we're looking at Acts because, I mean, it's a series uh, that's called Unleashed. We're looking at the first eight chapters. And, and as I said in the prayer, if you were listening, um, what, what we're doing with this series is we want to see how the early church, beginning with a few disciples who had denied Jesus when he died, when he was crucified, uh, who were scared, who were frightened, who were uncertain, how they began to live out their faith and own their faith and form their identity as Christians in the midst of a culture that, that doesn't accept their faith in the midst of a culture that finds their faith odd. Um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that the disciples are still in Jerusalem, um, that they are, 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 are growing in size. There's several thousand people at this point. They've encountered the first little bit of persecution. And so, um, but there is excitement. There is, the movement is, is, is expanding. The Christians love one another. Uh, if you were here last week, we looked at, at kind of the first indication that there were problems amongst the Christians in which Ananias and Sapphira lied um, about how much money they were donating. Or not, not really, they lied about, they said they donated the entirety of, of the money they got from selling a field, and they really hadn't. Um, they were just being hypocrites. And God struck them dead. And despite that moment, and despite that, and the fear that kind of broke out, the church was spreading, and people were excited. Um, but but looming over them was still the fact that that Jerusalem was was run by the Jewish religious leaders, and they had this relationship with the Roman Empire to kind of keep the peace. They could lead because the Romans enabled them to, but the thing the Romans asked them were taxes and peace. And, and, the, and the Jewish people, because they didn't like pagans ruling over them, because they expected the Messiah to come and kick out the pagans and set up the kingdom of God, there was a lot of unrest. And so there was a lot, the, the, the Romans kind of had their eyes on this province because there had been so much unrest, so many revolutionaries had already arisen by the time the disciples were going around talking about Jesus being the Lord, Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Messiah. And so they're nervous. And so the Jewish leaders, if you were here a few weeks ago, they already interrogated Peter and John and told them to stop preaching. And so if you were a believer, you were starting to get a little bit of fear. In fact, if you read in Acts chapter 5... Um, Picking up in verse 12, it says, Now many signs, and by the way, uh, I taught a retreat in Indiana this weekend. I lost uh, my favorite Bible. I didn't lose it. That's not true. I left my favorite Bible. And somebody's bringing it back to me uh, in a few weeks when they come to visit. But I do not have that. So I'm reading out of uh, the ESV. Um, and so if, if you're following along in another version, it might sound a little different. But um, now many signs and wonders were regularly done amongst the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Notice that. That even though they're doing signs and wonders, that none of the rest, which scholars are kind of divided on this, but probably means that a lot of the Christians, none of the rest would join them. A lot of the Christians were nervous about being around the apostles because they were starting to get attention because the Jewish leaders were starting to crack down on them. Can you imagine, even though it's, you know, when we read the initial um, uh, sermon in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and thousands convert, we get this feeling of there's a tremendous number of Christians because if we had 5,000 people in this room, which was, would be impossible, but if we could, um, you, you would feel like that's a tremendous number of people. But they are greatly outnumbered. None of these people have power. They have no military. They have no police force. And, and, and so the governing state uh, and, and the police force and the military doesn't like them, is opposed to them, has already warned them to stop preaching Christ in the temple. And you can imagine the fear that spreads. You can imagine the uncertainty that spreads. In all of you in your life, you have experienced what fear and uncertainty do to you. 
how it robs you of motivation, how it kind of keeps you from wanting to move forward. Um, when I was in uh, middle school, uh, most, of you, most of you know me now as a great athlete, but at that time I was a great scholar too. And I, I was in, uh, it was like called honors club or something, I don't know. Uh, and uh, I, I don't remember. Um, and they really didn't do anything special for us except they would let all the, it was, it was a, like a county school system, so all the kids who were in this club from all the different schools in the county could get together and they would plan trips for you. Until one year they planned uh, a ropes course and rappelling. Um, if you know me well, besides knowing that I'm a scholar and athlete, you'd also know that I'm absolutely terrified of heights. And so, but I signed up for this because uh, I don't know why. My mom probably made me. I had a twin sister. She went. She loved it. So my mom probably made me go for that reason. And I remember the first thing we did was we were supposed to rappel down this, uh, um, this cliff. It wasn't that high, but it was too high for me. And so I'm at the top. They hooked me up. You know, in my head, I'm thinking, once, once I just get kind of all the apparatus on, my fear will go away. I'll see how it works. And I remember kind of getting on the edge, and they're like, all right, and who's repelled before? Okay, most, uh, not most, uh, half of you, roughly half. <laughs> all of you have thousands, 3,000, I think, uh, which is roughly the number going to retreat. You should sign up. And, uh, and so, but you know, like, uh, in my head, I picture kind of like climbing down it like a ladder where your head is, is directly above your feet. Not what happens, right? <laughs> Because, I mean, because you basically are, like, out almost perpendicular yeah. to the cliff. And so they kept trying to get me to, to lean out like that, and I, and I wouldn't. And I was just frightened. And, and once I realized what they wanted me to do, I just froze. Because all of a sudden, kind of going through my head was, was, was what could happen, which is I could fall. Uh, and it was high enough that that would, that would not end well. Um, and so eventually, the instructor just finally got frustrated and, and, and pulled me up and made me get all the apparatus off. And I just watched everybody else climb down and then I hiked down, which was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, loved it. <laughs> I don't know what all the, the hubbub was about the rappelling. Uh, so, um, but, but in that moment, the fear, the uncertainty of what could happen made me freeze. It, it, it made me start to doubt if I really could kind of take the next step. Some of you, I know, um, deal with anxiety when you take tests. And no matter how much you study, the fear of, of doing poorly particularly towards the end of the semester when you're trying to reach to get that A or B or C or D, um, and, and you know you have to perform at a certain level, you get very nervous. That pressure scares you. And what's odd often about that kind of pressure is that you enter into, um, even before the test, almost like procrastination at times. Like the odd thing is that fear, you can fear something so badly that you become unmotivated. <laughs> you fear something so much that you kind of become resigned to, I'm just going to do poorly anyway. Why should I study? I'm just going to fall down the cliff. Why should I climb down? You enter this deep level of procrastination where you don't want to do anything because you're so fearful about what's about to happen. And the early church is kind of in this stage at this point. That the leadership is against them. The leadership has threatened them. I keep reminding you this, but it's important to remember that weeks earlier, they had watched Jesus be brutally beaten and crucified at the recommendation of these very leaders. <clears throat> what do you do when you're a part of a, uh, of a mission, a part of the kingdom of God, and Jesus has told you to be witnesses to the whole world? What do you do when you start to have the fear and uncertainty that maybe the world is turning against it? <clears throat> you know, right now, a lot of Christians feel like our society is turning against our faith. Now, what we're experiencing is nothing like what the early church experienced. I don't know a single Christian in America 
who's been beaten for their faith. But we start to feel the society slipping away. Um, you might have noticed that the Supreme Court backed a lower court decision to remove the Ten Commandments from uh, a, a state capital. Whatever you think about the government's role in that, some people see that and they think that the society is distancing itself more and more from Christianity. And we're, we're several steps away, but we are just steps away from our faith being marginalized and, and ridiculed and persecuted. Every Christmas season, there's, there's, uh, you know, the commentators talk about the war on Christmas. And people have bumper stickers, don't take Christ out of Christmas. And people get offended when somebody says happy holidays to them rather than Merry Christmas. Why? Because we feel and we fear that our society is slipping away. That people aren't as welcoming of our faith. That people um, are more opposed to it. Now, I don't know what you do with that, you personally. I don't know how you react to that. Um, I, I don't get up as, as up in arms about that because I see it as the passing of a Christian nation not so much as we're losing disciples. Statistically, if you look at ways to kind of track if people are really engaged in their faith, it's not lower. It's just people who weren't really engaged in their faith previously but would claim to be Christians no longer claim to be Christians, right? Um, and so that's kind of what's happening statistically. So I don't get us as up in arms about that. But what's interesting to me is, is, is so often the, the way that we react when we feel... Uh, the, if you watch the broader scene, I know that you guys, you know, you're not... Um, you're not as involved in politics as you one day will be. Some of you uh, maybe have just voted for the first time in the election this past year. Um, and so you, you might not be tracking what's going on. It might not be affecting you as heavily. But, but I get the sense that, that Christians react to society becoming more opposed to our faith in a couple of different ways. One is that we, we begin to kind of politicize everything. We're going to fight this through politics. We're going to fight this because we're going to kind of make everything a last stand, a hill to die on, and we're going to try to win this through the government, and that's how we'll turn the society back, or at least slow it down. But in the midst of that, overall, if you start thinking about not so much politics, but how people evangelize and how people reach out, what's, interested, what's interesting to me is that because the society opposes our faith more, because people are less interested, because we sense that society is just less and less and less Christian every few years, I've noticed that Christians seem to be less comfortable sharing the gospel. Because, well, people get offended at it. People aren't interested in it. They might not believe what I believe. They might not have the background. They might not be seekers, right? We, we, start to, we start to get this fear and this uncertainty about how the society is relating to us. And that ends up kind of making us unmotivated to share the gospel. Why? Because the society is going to turn against Christ anyway. There's nothing we can do. What we need to do is kind of get in our little enclaves and retreat and just try to protect ourselves from the way society is changing. And the irony about that, of that to me is that as our society becomes less Christian, Christians become less motivated to share the gospel. Which, right, isn't how it should be. That the increasing number of Christians... I mean, the increasing number of non-Christians should make Christians even more zealous, even more interested in engaging the society around us, because now there's even more people that need to hear the gospel. What happens is we retreat. What happens is we're fearful. What happens is we're uncertain about how people will react, so we don't ever open our mouths. But I don't think that's how we see the, the disciples dealing with this. 
actually in this passage, it's not so much what we see the disciples do. I don't think that's how we see God in this story engaging what's happening. Society is turning against. The leadership is going to persecute the church. And if you see and pay attention to what we're going to read, God is very active in this. And I want you to kind of see what happens. I want you to see the message that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to get across to us. Um, we're, I'm, we're just going to work through the story. I don't have like four or five points from each different little part. I just want you to see kind of what happens here. Um, so, um, we'll skip down to verse 17. Just know that verses 12 through 16 is one of these summaries that Luke does regularly. And, and basically, the apostles are doing signs and wonders. People are excited. Um, uh, the apostles have great power, but people are starting to get a little scared. And in verse 17, it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, uh, two weeks ago we talked about this. Who, who are the Sadducees? The Jewish religious sect that doesn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, Jewish... Re- influential and powerful monetarily. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. Put those two together. Um, the Jewish religious sect, they don't believe in the resurrection. Um, that, that's one of the reasons they don't like the preaching that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Because that means that they're wrong if the Christians are right. Um, but they also are very powerful. They, they are the group that's been controlling the politics in Jerusalem and Judea. They are the ones who've made the alliance with, the, with Rome um, to where if, as long as they keep the peace, Rome will let them keep their power. And there was an informal body of people called the Sanhedrin, 70 people plus the chief priest, who, who made decisions, who ruled. And those were mostly Sadducees. And so uh, the high priest rolled out the, uh, the party of Sadducees and filled with jealousy. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, what's, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at a story where the apostles were arrested. What's different about this time? In the past, it was more as a holding thing, like we need to figure out what to do with them until tomorrow. And now it seems like they're being put on display as like a look. To be ridiculed. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's still a holding. Um, and this, this time, all the apostles are arrested. Right? The story we looked at two weeks ago in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 3, it was just Peter and John who were arrested. But in this case, all the apostles have been arrested. And so you get this intensification, right, that the leadership is more and more paying attention to, to the leaders of the Christians, more and more paying attention to what these body of believers are doing. And this time, they arrest all of them. And so, um, they put them in a public prison. Jamie referenced this, that the prisons were not like you're going to go there for five years and, and serve out your term. This was just kind of a holding cell. They put them in there, going to hold them overnight, and the next morning they would interrogate them and kind of, uh, uh, kind of put them on trial. So they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This life being referenced to Jesus. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, now notice, notice this. We know they've been let out of prison. But now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the Sanhedrin and all the Senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. They had no clue the apostles were let out. Now, Luke doesn't really tell us how this happens. He doesn't really explain how an angel of the Lord helped them get out of there. Um, the, we find out later the doors are still shut. The guards 
didn't really realize that, that uh, they, they had escaped. So somehow, through a miracle, uh, we're not exactly how, sure how, the apostles, all of them, escape. And then at daybreak, they're in the temple preaching, but over in the area where the Sanhedrin is meeting, they don't realize it. And so they, they're about to go, they're going to go about their trial just like they had planned. And so uh, the high priest had called together, blah, 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 verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So it gives you a little more insight to what, what happened when they escaped. Somehow they escaped without the guards noticing. Somehow they escaped without the doors uh, being unlocked. So they walked through walls and maybe the doors opened and the guards kind of were in a trance or, you know, knocked out momentarily and they walked out and the doors were shut and locked and the guards woke up and didn't realize. You know, I, I, I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us what happened. Um, by the way, if you're an apostle, what are you thinking during this whole thing? You're thrown in jail. That's frightening. But then an angel appears to you and tells you not to escape, but to go to the most public place in Jerusalem and keep preaching. What do you, what's your thoughts? How would you react? I'd be mortified. You'd be mortified? Scared? Like, it's, it's like a great prison escape, only to go back out, and, and it, it's almost certainly you're going to get arrested again? Almost certainly you're kind of put there in harm's way. If they were mad about us preaching Christ and healing the lame man, which is what happened a few stories ago, don't you think they're going to be mad this time about them escaping prison? And then going and continuing to preach Christ. Remember, the Sadducees, as I keep saying, have this relationship with the Roman rulers. They don't want a, 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 a disruption of the peace. And, and so that especially means that they don't want someone proclaiming that there's a new Lord, a new king. God's anointed one has come. And they don't want that happening in the temple, the most popular place in Jerusalem. And so if you're the Sadducees, you think you're going to kind of get everything under control, start to, start to contain this problem, and all of a sudden the apostles are out in the temple preaching in the most public place about the Messiah, about the Lord. That's got to frighten you. And the apostles know that has to frighten the Sadducees. They know that has to threaten the Sanhedrin. And so God's told you to go out and preach in, a very, in the very situation that might end up getting you arrested, might end up getting you killed. When you start to question the wisdom of God in this, God, wouldn't it be better for us just use this moment, escape out of Jerusalem, kind of like Paul did later in Acts, you know, over the wall at night, no one will know, we'll go elsewhere. You told us to go to Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth, let's just be done with Jerusalem for a while. And instead, go to the very center of Jerusalem, go to the, one of the most public places, and continue to preach. Um, <clears throat> so, the, 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 they come back and they report to the, Sadduce, uh, to the, to, to the Sanhedrin, um, that they didn't find them. That the doors were locked, the guards were standing there. Verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Can you just kind of picture how frightened they must be? I mean, they, they at some level are convinced these Christians are wrong. At some level are convicted that this is a very dangerous thing for their political positions for their power structure, for their economic base, for these Christians to arise. And all of a sudden you find out that they have somehow escaped from prison 
and are out preaching again. Imagine how frightened these, uh, and, and confused and worried, maybe even angry, the Sanhedrin was. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So you kind of you start to get uh, even more the, the layers here. That the Jewish leadership did not like the Christians. They wanted them stopped. But what was kind of making them a little nervous was, was that the people liked the Christians. Now, not, not all the people had converted, but they were interested in what they were saying. And, and, and they were so interested that the captain of the guard was concerned that if they went and tried to forcibly remove the apostles, that the people would turn on them. Right? This is different, uh, if you remember from the Gospels, than when Jesus was arrested, right? Because the people, even though when he entered uh, into Jerusalem, they were shouting and excited about him, um, they were the ones that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They had turned on him at one point, right? And so, but at this point, the Christians still had the people behind them, the people backing them. And it makes, it makes them nervous. And so um, it doesn't really tell us, but I'm guessing the captain of the guard goes up and, and says to the apostles, can you please come with us? <laughs> can you come with us to the Sanhedrin, the guys that want to put you on trial, the guys that wish you were dead? And the apostles say, apparently, sure. And so they walk. And in verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. And remember, this would have been kind of a semicircle area. And so you just, all, all, the, all the apostles are standing there, and 71 of the most powerful Jewish men in Jerusalem are kind of arrayed before them in a semicircle, interrogating them. And they say, verse 28, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you're trying to place the blame on us. You're going to get everybody to support you, and you keep coming back and blaming us with killing Jesus. In other words, notice that the accusation at this point isn't about theology. It's you are subverting the peace. You are creating issues. You are creating political problems. Why are you doing that? In verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed... By hanging him on a tree again. Like, like they, they're mad that they keep putting the blood of Jesus on him. And Peter just stands up and says, we've got to obey God. And by the way, you killed Jesus. Just, just so you know, if that's, that's like an open question for you, you did it. It's your fault. Um, and he says, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. Does, this is just a free biblical thing. Does anybody know the significance of that? Yes, in Deuteronomy, it says, Curses any man who hangs on a tree. So this was, this was repeated several times in the New Testament. They took this as a sign that Jesus' death was, was a particularly cursed death. Um, the Christians interpreted this as, as, again, that the sins of the world were put on him. And so you hung him from a tree. You, in other words, it was a shameful, cursed death. Um, <clears throat> God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So you cursed him, you put him to a shameful death, but God rose him from the dead. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, this were, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now, who, how do we, um, sorry, later in Acts, how does Gamaliel um, play a role? 
Where does he show up again? You're answering all the questions. Yes. Yes. Paul, Saul, who would later be Paul the Apostle, was taught by this guy. He's very famous. He's one of the few people of this era whom uh, the, um, is mentioned in later documents. It says when he died, kind of a passion for holiness died with him. In other words, that, that, that he was a great teacher. He encouraged people to follow God. So this is a man that's held in great respect. Is he a Christian? Yes or no? No, he's not a Christian. So this is the first time you get a speech. You're about to hear a speech from a non-Christian for the first time in Acts about Christianity. And notice what he says. So he orders them to put the apostles out. So he's picturing them kind of kicking them all out. And he says to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. So be careful. You want to kill them. You want this to stop. Watch out. For before these days, Thutis rose up, rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that um, Judea was known, in Galilee actually, was known for revolutionaries. People who were mad that the Romans were in control. People who felt like the religious leaders often um, kind of mixed in with these pagans and, and kind of compromised and sacrificed principles to appease the pagan rulers. And they felt like God was calling them to purify the people, to kick out the pagans. That, that's what God wanted them to do. And so you have several instances of people coming and, kick in, uh, people coming and, and standing up and saying, let's fight the Romans. And then guess what the Romans would do? Massacre them, <laughs> right? The Romans were not fun people to fight against, all right? And they were very brutal in, putting, in ending revolts. There are stories of them crucifying people all along roads. Um, you would walk for miles and miles and miles, and along the edge of the road, with people who were, cru- were hanging, dying, slowly dying, being crucified, having been crucified, all because that they had revolted against the Romans. And so um, Gamaliel was about to name several of these revolutionaries. And he says, so there's one guy, you guys remember Thutis, he, he rose up, he raised about 400 people around him, he claimed to be something that probably, probably like he's probably indicating that Thutis claimed to be like a prophet or a special person of God. We know, we know of nothing else in history about this guy. Um, there's another, it's a common name, so there's another guy with this same name who also tried to start a revolt. That's how common it was at this time. Um, so we know nothing about this guy other than he tried to do this. And he says, look, it came to nothing. After that, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Why do you think, he, why do you think Emmanuel brings up these examples? What's the importance of them? <coughs> if you're in the Sanhedrin, one of your most respected people stands up and says, Be careful, because remember there were other revolutionaries, and, we killed, and, and they were killed. And it just kind of dispersed and went to nothing. Why do you think Emmanuel is saying that? <laughs> Someone other than James. Thank you. <laughs> saying we got this. Why, why are you worried? These guys are tiny. We've got power. So we've seen revolutionaries who've created a little bit of a disturbance, who've gotten enough popularity that, that hundreds of people follow them, and nothing became of that. And he presses it further, and he says in verse 30, So in the present case, in other words, with the Christians, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. (coughs) But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. He's saying this to men who take themselves to be religious leaders and, and kind of overseeing God's people. And he says, in the end, you might oppose God if, they're of, if this movement is of God, you could be in opposition to them. If it's not of God, it's going to be destroyed. Partly, by the way, um, because Rome was the most powerful force. If you had to think of the most powerful thing in, in, in the empire at this time, you would think of Rome and its legions. They're fighting wars all over the place. They could take on great odds and kill people. They were a very disciplined fighting machine, and they were very brutal in putting down revolts. And and, and so if you're sitting there and and, and watching this, you're going to say, look, there's no human way that a movement like this, claiming that someone else other than Caesar is Lord, can exist, can survive, unless it is backed by God. And if it's backed by God, we do not want to oppose them. So... They found him convincing. It says at the end of verse 39, they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That's kind of light punishment compared to what they're doing. It would have been 39 lashings. lashings. It would not have been that light. It would have been brutal and bloody. Um, but they beat the 12, uh, the 12 apostles and told them to leave and told them to stop preaching Jesus. But notice verse 41, then they left the presence of the council Rejoicing. Why? That they were set free? No. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so you have the apostles that get beaten, told to shut up about Jesus, and every day they're going to the temple, the most public place, preaching and teaching about Jesus. What does Luke want you to see? Why does Luke record this story? Particularly, why does Luke record what a non-Christian stands up and says about Christianity? What does Luke want you to see? Oh, there. Um, I feel like God's working to the non-believers. So one thing is, is, is you see that God's kind of working here. Um, what else? Adam. <laughs> that when the power of God is at work, um, it is both unstoppable and undeniable that it is the power of God. Hmm. Yeah, that when, when the power of God is at work, it's both unstoppable and undeniable. I mean, notice how, how Luke is setting this up. Notice how um, all this is being set up, that, that the, these are the most powerful men in Jerusalem. They're backed by the most powerful army. The, the Sanhedrin is not Romans, but they have a, a kind of an agreement with the Romans. So the most powerful, wealthiest men, Jewish men, um, in Jerusalem and Judea are standing before the apostles. They're backed by the authority of the Romans. Who crucified Jesus? Bible trivia. Huh? The Romans. The Romans did. And who had them do it? The Jews, right? The Jewish leaders. 
And so they're standing before these guys, the most powerful, wealthy Jewish men in the area, who, who, have, uh, who, who are backed by the most powerful army that the world has ever known at this point. And they are trying to, try, trying to squash this movement. They want nothing more than Christianity to drop off the face of the earth. It's, it's a problem. It's a nuisance. It's a threat because if they create enough issues that the Romans could come in and start killing people left and right. That happened more than once. They didn't want this to go on. And Luke wants you to see that even though these 12 men, these Galileans, they're not wealthy. They're not educated by the, those, uh, the standards of that day, much less the standards of our day. They have no positions of power. They're not on the Sanhedrin. They have no army behind them. They have a few thousand converts, most of whom, by the way, have not been Christians for more than a few weeks. They don't know very much about Christianity. As I keep reminding you, you know way more about Christianity than the people in these stories know at this point. And that even though these people, uneducated, with no power, with no money, with just a small band of followers, are standing up and opposed by the most powerful men in the land, backed by the most powerful army in the world, Luke wants you to know that that is no match for the power of God. Luke wants you to know that when Jesus looked at these men and said, You will be my witnesses... All throughout the earth, Jesus fully understood that every bit of, of the power that human empires had, everything that Satan could throw at them, he would throw at them, but they would still be Jesus' witnesses. These men are flogged, they're beaten, they're threatened with death, they're sh- told to shut up. And the next day, with bloody, sore backs, they're preaching in the temple. God's movement will not be stopped. There's no power on earth. Not even the power of hell can stand up against what God intends to do. And notice that in the face of that fear, in the face of the uncertainty, they're not worried about where society will be in 30 years. The society is at that point in time opposed to the faith and wants it dead and wants them dead and their families persecuted. In that moment... The fear and the uncertainty doesn't drive the disciples to shut up and keep quiet and kind of fall back into their own enclaves. It gets them to proclaim things. It gets them to go out and preach the name of Jesus Christ in the midst of that fear, under the heading of that threat, in the very heart of Jerusalem, in the temple, where they had no doubt that the Jewish leaders would know about it. Because they knew the power of God. Because they knew that God was moving and God's, world, God's kingdom was going to spread throughout the world no matter what. Because they trusted that God was more powerful than these men arrayed in front of them. They kept proclaiming and preaching the message. I want you to notice that they did not picket. They did not start a political campaign. They did not start a protest. They did not protest. They did not boycott the temple. Because the power of God's people is not in those things. The power of God's people is not in their vote. The power of God's people is not in the boycotts or all the social movements that we can start. The power of God's people is where Paul said it was. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Do I know the rest of that quote? For it is the power of God that brings salvation. The only power the people of God have been given has been the message of Christ. Proclaimed through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only power we have. What Luke wants you to know is that's more than enough power. 
You can be fearful of where society is heading. You can be fearful about what your classmate or roommate will think about your faith. You can be uncertain about how they will react. You can be uncertain about your workplace and whether you'll get a promotion if you proclaim Christ. And what Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants you to see is who cares because your boss, your coworker, your roommate, your best friend, your family is no match for the power of God. God has said His kingdom was going to spread. In the face of opposition, but it will not be stopped. Not by the most powerful man in Jerusalem, backed by the most powerful army, and not by the scorn and frustration of your friends. Are you so uncertain about how people react to the gospel that you never proclaim it? Are you so fearful about how things are turning in our society that you start to be more and more quiet about your faith? Because I want you to notice that for Luke, that's not a problem with your evangelistic strategy. That is showing your lack of faith in the power of God. <coughs> because in that moment, what you were saying, what you're proclaiming, even though, I mean, what, kind of what you're um, um, portraying, is that you think that a society turning against Christ, taking Christ out of Christmas, that a society becoming less interested in your religion, that a roommate who gets annoyed that you're a Christian or who doesn't believe or who thinks Christians are bigots, or a family who doesn't believe that you should take your faith as seriously, that in the moment what you're portraying is you think that those people somehow can stop the unstoppable God. So my encouragement to you, if you're listening to what Luke is saying, if you're hearing what he's, what he's holding out to you, it's that because God is so powerful, because God has promised that His kingdom will spread, because He's told us that His word is powerful, that in the face of uncertainty and the fear of people disliking the faith of society turning against it, your reaction to that is to fall back on the only thing that you know is powerful, and that is proclaiming the word of God. Talking to people about Christ, sharing the gospel, living lives that witness to our God and His righteousness and holiness and power. And by the way, this lesson isn't only about how you share the gospel. Because I know that you have a lot more concerns than that. And let me just say that if, if the most powerful man in Jerusalem, backed by the most powerful army of the world, can't stop what God wants, if he can't stop the plan and purposes of God, why is it that we get so discouraged by our sin and by giving in a temptation? What I mean by that is, is, is it's, it's very common that I feel this way, that some of you talk to me and you feel this way, that, that you feel discouraged because you feel defeated. You've tried to overcome lust, pornography, greed, harsh words. You're struggling with depression despair and you feel defeated by that and I think that one thing that Luke wants you to see with this and I want to close with this is that look if, if these powerful men if these powerful forces of the world can't stop what God wants then do you really think that Satan's temptation in your life towards pornography towards anger towards bitterness towards an unforgiving heart, towards despair, do you really think that those temptations, those desires are stronger than what God wants in your life? Because 
Luke wants you to see that they're not. And the way that you deal with fear and uncertainty and frustrations of failures is that you trust the power of God. And you keep stepping out in faith that God is going to finish the good work in you that He began when you became a Christian.